If I had to ask you for the image this phrase conjures in your head, at least before last week, it probably would have been the same as mine. A dejected coach or a player in front of the microphones and the media being asked to explain why their team sucked. It's unfortunate that's just part of the game. You know, it, it is what it is. It is what it is. Cowboys, the fans, they came, they came with it today. We've had any continuity in the, with the same five. It's just, it is what it is. And that's it. It's basic. They lost. There's nothing else to be done. It just is what it is. And that description applies to the phrase itself, too. At least it did. Until someone else tried to use it to shrug away a different kind of defeat. I think it's under control. I'll tell you what. How? A thousand Americans are dying a day. They are dying. That's true. And you ha- it is what it is. Somehow, it is what it is has gone from a sports cliché to brushing off a thousand deaths a day, but kept the same emotion behind it. Pitcher just didn't have his best stuff. Goalie let in a softie. We couldn't hit a three. We mismanaged a national response to a global pandemic. Yeah, it is what it is. And of course, once Trump takes on a phrase, so do his opponents. Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. He simply cannot be who we need him to be for us. It is what it is. So now here we are, with a little linguistic tick that means almost literally nothing, being spun in every direction. So where did the phrase come from, originally? What was it intended to mean? And how did it move from sports to politics and now everywhere else? Why has it become so common? And when people use it, when we use it, what are we trying to convey? When we say it is what it is, what is it? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Miles Klee is a writer for Mel Magazine who uh, dug into the long history of this phrase. Hi, Miles. Hi. How's it going? Oh, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> Sorry to hear it. <laughs> Do you remember uh, the first time that you encountered that phrase in the wild? So I was thinking about this, and I don't think I really do remember it. Um, I am betting that it was in the context of a post-game sports conference, like a like a press conference after a game. I don't really remember it at all, to be honest. It just seems like something that's always been out there. Yeah, and I would uh, I would say that that's probably a safe bet. Um, some annoyed coach that's annoyed he even has to explain himself yeah i i you know what i'm i'm not a huge sports person myself but it always seems funny to me that they drag the coach in there after a big loss and they're kind of like haggling him about it <laughs> so in your mind before you began um looking into it and and writing this piece what did the phrase mean in your mind like what did it stand for yeah so uh, I always thought of it as kind of filler, right? Like it's uh, something you say when you are out of comments, uh, you're out of patience maybe, um, and you just want to move on. It's it's a statement of, you know, almost giving up, I would say. And once you start to look into it, how far back does it really go? Because uh, I, like you, would probably have assumed that it originated you know, sometime in the late 90s, early 2000s uh, post-game locker room interview. Yeah, so it has a really interesting origin that uh, William Sapphire, the late uh, language columnist, uh, looked up. 
1949, this guy J.E. Lawrence, a uh, famous Nebraskan, uh, wrote in the Nebraska State Journal uh, about kind of the rugged frontier life. And obviously he was a big fan of Nebraska. Um, and he was kind of pointing out that the state um, is rugged and tough, but that there's an kind of unflinching honesty about that. Uh, he wrote, there's nothing of sham or hypocrisy in it. It is what it is without apology. And so that's kind of a really poetic origin. I was, I was surprised. And, and, it, and it has this really deliberate kind of measured tone in, within the piece that he's writing, which is, the, which is this ode to kind of, yeah, the, the frontier life and how, and how beautifully kind of uh, pristine it is, but how, how tough that makes it um, because there's no basically no human development on it yet. And yeah, that meaning seems so far away from the way we use it now. Yeah, I mean, I was struck by just how, you know, blunt and honest and straightforward that usage is, whereas, you know, I come to almost associate the phrase now with kind of dissembling or, or you know, obfuscating or whatever, just let's not talk about the real stuff. Yeah, it, 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 in that way, it has completely reversed meaning where, you know, uh, Lawrence was talking about, um, you know, looking something straight in the eye and, and specifically nature and knowing it for the reality that it is. And now uh, it's euphemistic. And it's also been described um, as a deliberate tautology. What is that, first of all, for those of us who, who haven't gotten into languages? Yeah, so one of the uh, philosophy professors I talked to, uh, Garrett Pendergraft, who's at Pepperdine University's Seaver College, the, he's the one who described it as a deliberate tautology, and he, and he told me he teaches it to his logic students. Yeah, a, a tautology is, uh, is basically a phrase that means itself. Uh, when you're saying it, it is what it is, you're saying, you know, something that is reflexively true. So the other example he gave is, it's raining or it's not raining. Uh, so when you say something like that, you are it, that is factually true because it either is or it isn't. Um, and so when you say it is what it is, you are you are basically saying something that cannot be disproven, right? Um, and that's I think why it's sort of a useful uh, verbal crutch in these moments where you don't know what to say because no one can really tell you it's not what it is. It is what it is. Um, so that's that's kind of what it means by a deliberate tautology, but it all depends on the context was was the point he made. So, you know, what is the it there? Right. And and how um, is it used? Because this is one of the things that I uh, find really striking and, and somewhat disconcerting about this phrase and just the rise of it in general is that, you know, to your point, um, it's something that is explicitly factual and yet it, it often seems to be used to convey emotion. Yeah, um, in the sports context, there's definitely an air of defeat about it, but it is also um, an attempt to move on. I think when you say it is what it is, it is the, it is the sh shortest possible shortcut uh, from there to the next topic because you don't like what's being discussed right now. So explain that and maybe um, for people who aren't as tuned into the American uh, political news cycle and lucky them. Um, <laughs> explain how it kind of reached the the pinnacle of its existence uh, last week and, and how it was used and what happened. Right. So Donald Trump, who, you know, if anyone has kind of like a lot of verbal crutches and shortcuts, it's him. Um, you know, he kind of just moves from one thing to another as 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 awkwardly and jerkily as he can. 
was asked about, you know, a thousand Americans dying of coronavirus every day and said, it is what it is. And that kind of signaled to a lot of people that A, he didn't care. B, he just wanted to get on to some other topic that made him look better. And see that he really didn't think much of his ability to have affected a different outcome. And all three of those things are are pretty bad because um, it just makes it sound like he had never even tried to affect a different outcome or or help this country face down a you know a preventable uh, pandemic. And uh, <laughs> yeah, nobody nobody likes that. I mean, people are dying, and uh, you you can say it is what it is about losing a big game, but nobody died. When you say it is what it is about preventable deaths. Uh, it makes it seem like uh, they are not actually real to you. And so that is like an incredible perversion of the thing J.E. Lawrence was doing, which is, um, you know, there's there's an unflinching honesty here. Trump is just the exact opposite of that. And so, yeah, the, the phrase within half a century or 70 years, I should say, really just did a complete 180. But yet still, um, he was speaking the truth, really. Yeah, no, uh, it is what it is in the in the tautological sense. Um, thousands of people have died. That is the truth. And yeah, reality is reality um, is the most charitable spin you could put on it. He could have said it's a great tragedy. Uh, I mean, even he is capable of something like that, of sort of those like gestures at empathy. But this statement just seemed completely devoid of that. What was the reaction to it um, in America? Really, really aghast and horrified. Um, you know, someone like Anderson Cooper uh, went on a whole tear about it. Um, he called it cruel and heartless. It's been really bad. People on uh, it, it, who are in what uh, is termed the resistance, uh, who are, are kind of these um, very online liberals, have now begun using it basically sarcastically. So in the same way, they might say thoughts and prayers to someone that they don't think uh, is really deserving of those things. You know, if there's bad news for Trump or Republicans or anything like that, they're often now tweeting, it is what it is, which is to say, I don't care that you're suffering because you don't care that I'm suffering. So that's kind of where we're at with it now. It, yeah, it has become this kind of sarcastic rejoinder. And in fact, Michelle Obama used it at the DN in her DNC speech. Uh, Senator Lindsey Graham used it in a tweet, and um, it's kind of very rapidly, even from what it was, it sort of devolved in meaning. It, it really means even less than it ever did because uh, people are just reflexively saying it to each other now to try to uh, try to burn each other, I guess. Um, and yeah, it's it's just not landing. I would say it's not landing anymore at all. It's not even um, an English phrase anymore. It's just a meme. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When you asked philosophers about Trump's use of the phrase or even just how uh, the phrase uh, has changed in meaning recently, what did they say? Uh, yeah, so Professor Pendergraf said that it was a pretty callous thing. He he saw a link to the, the semi-prophetic remark, uh, whatever will be, will be, uh, which is, you know, just hmm. sort of a preemptive way of saying it is what it is. And I think that is Trump's attitude where, you know, even at the beginning of this, he was kind of like, well, everything will work out fine. And if not, uh, that's fine, too, you know, because it really doesn't make a difference to him. 
But both he and uh, Helen de Cruz, who's the uh, who's a chair of humanities at St. Louis University, pointed out that the phrase is never really associated with good news. So she was like, uh, you know, we never say I won the lottery. It is what it is. Right. <laughs> right. It, uh, it, it, it conveys an acceptance of something that we want to say is sort of inevitable. Right. And I think that's another thing that rubbed people the wrong way about when Trump used it is these deaths were not inevitable. So why are you saying it is what it is? It, w- it wasn't a hurricane that, you know, came and smashed through um, uh, that we never predicted it's this was all very predictable and everyone all the warnings were all there so it, it read as a heartless dismissal and 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 basically saying that we never were in a position to do anything about it which of course he was and he's you know he's he's kind of denied responsibility from the start it's an it's an affirmation of reality which is strange because he's kind of someone who avoids reality but it is like I said, a euphemistic way of dealing with reality and, and kind of pushing it to the side. You also got into what three things, you know, you or I um, are trying to do when we use the phrase. And what are they and how are we trying to accomplish it? Right. So there's three things that happen here. This has to do with the philosophy of language. And this is what uh, DeCruz, Professor DeCruz uh, explained to me. So the first, it pertains to locution. So that's the literal meaning. That's the tautology the it is what it is, reality is reality, one equals one. So then you have the second factor, which is illocution. That's the intent of the speaker. Uh, what Trump is trying to say, if you even consider him as trying to create meaning <laughs> as opposed to as opposed to just getting through an interview. And then there's perlocution, and that's how the speech act is received by the listener. So that's when Anderson Cooper does a segment on it, that's when people on Twitter start using it sarcastically. Perlocution is is kind of what you get when you add together the speaker and the context uh, and the listener, and that is the that is the negative reaction from from Americans who are kind of appalled that uh, yeah Trump would just say it is what it is like uh, you know like hundreds of thousands of people dying is, you know, losing the big game. Well, here's the other thing too, is that it, it, it's so reliant on what we already know, uh, or believe at least about Donald Trump, because there are places in, uh, so, you know, full disclosure for this interview, I was surfing around for clips of various athletes or sports figures saying it is what it is. And, you often come across crappy athletes who've just lost or whatever, but you also come across like some of the biggest and best names in sports, like, I don't know, Bill Belichick or, you know, Novak Djokovic or whatever, which we found. And from them, it comes across as like, well, I didn't, I didn't quite do it today, but we're going to get them tomorrow, which is, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not sure if that's the way they're saying it or, or if what my own impression of them uh, creates from it. Yeah, I think um, in the sports context, sometimes you're seeing a coach or a player kind of do the analysis in their own head of what went wrong, but they're not necessarily spelling that all out for the listener. Uh, (laughs) I think if Belichick is saying it is what it is, he's kind of like running back the game in his head and thinking of, you know, what could have gone differently and what actually happened versus what actually happened and what actually happened is what it is. Right. Um, and yeah, and yeah, that certainly in that context, you're talking about applying that knowledge to, 
you know the rest of your career or or the or the game the next day and you are and you are moving on from that defeat with basically more information about what you can do the next time for sure uh with trump it just feels like he is accepting that uh we've had this mass casualty event and that he is willing to accept actually far more and far worse um because he's certainly not going to change the way he's doing things how much further does this phrase have to travel do you think for lack of a of a better term, because you, you sort of described where it came from and then what it became in the world of sports and then what it became when Trump used it and now what it's become even in the, you know, eight, 10 days since he used it. Like, uh, <laughs> how much more can this thing shift? <laughs> yeah, like I said, I think it has already it has already become a pet peeve of a lot of people. Uh, when I started writing this piece, it was because a coworker of mine uh, you know, had heard it and said, you know, I, I always thought that was one of the stupidest things I ever heard. And it, it always annoys me because to, to him, it, to him, it was always meaningless. And we know that it's not quite meaningless and that it actually has the capacity to really upset people because of the context in which it was just used. I think it will continue to be a kind of knee jerk, uh, comment and like i said at the beginning just a filler we all have these kind of verbal stumbles and and patches and tricks and 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 clichés and we're kind of addicted to cliche i think in language and we will continue to use it basically whenever we feel pressed against the wall about uh <laughs> some uncomfortable fact that will always be what it is it is what it is and when we say that, we're also surrendering some responsibility for it. And I think that's the phase that we're moving into now. So in the sports world, it was always kind of an admission of defeat and, and guilt. And, you know, maybe I was responsible for that. Uh, that's no longer the case. Now it is much more of a I wash my hands of it. And right. you're on I your have own no control over this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you're on your own. And I don't, you know, I don't feel any special empathy or pity for you um it's like i said it's like the thoughts and prayers thing now um so we're now just signifying the kind of the emptiness of our own response which is another weird uh kind of way of reducing the phrase to yeah just 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 diving into the hollowness of it <laughs> and uh yeah i don't i don't know in, in a way in a way it's it's become yeah even more hollowed out than it was what about um you know, a couple of generations from now, and I only ask this not to ask you to peer into the future of language, but because, you know, you said that this phrase first appeared in, you know, the, the 40s, and then most of us don't remember hearing it at all until, you know, the 2000s. And now it is, at least in my mind, and people can disagree if they want, but so tied to this particular era mm -hmm. that um, it might become a, a, a relic of that. You know, there, and I could probably list them off the top of my head, but there are so many phrases from the 1990s that now, you know, we really don't use in the way that we use them at all because they're, they're forever tied to that time. Yeah, it could end up sounding old-fashioned, actually, I think. And yeah, 20 years from now, maybe I, I will say it and sound like an old fogey because <laughs> it, is, uh, it is a cliche or an expression from another time. You know, certainly... Certainly, we're not really talking, the, yeah, the way we were 30 years ago 
we're not talking like the way we were in the 40s. And uh, these things change, and but they're also circular. So it could be that it came back into vogue. It's really hard to understand how it came back in into style. Mm-hmm. There's not really a good explanation for how it made the leap from a semi-obscure Nebraska newspaper in the 40s to, uh, you know, sports press conferences in late 90s, early 2000s. But yeah, even that, even that was kind of a while ago. And we could have, we could be seeing a peak of it right now since people are kind of using it vindictively. It could be kind of considered cringy or cliche because of that. I know a lot of people who would, you know, make fun of the, the, the resistance folks using it all the time and, and just saying, well, that's kind of lame. And, uh, it, it's it's always lame to try to nail Trump for his hypocrisy and th- all that because he doesn't care. So why why are we clinging to this phrase? <laughs> why are we trying to own him with it? And uh, yeah, we probably will eventually let it go. And then um, all it takes is one person using it again and 20 years down the road and a few people saying, oh, that's kind of interesting. And uh, then it can acquire this whole new life again. Before I let you go, are you, after uh, having written this piece a week ago, um, more or less likely to use the phrase in your own life? Ooh, good question. I I want I want to use it less. I don't think I was ever one for using it, um, <laughs> but now it's in my brain. Like I can't <laughs> I can't dislodge right. it. Right. So there, the temptation to use it is much more present. I think um, for me. I I don't know. I'm kind of like a maybe a self-deprecating, ironic sort of personality, and I yeah I think that's the, probably the way in which I'd use it. Or maybe if uh, you know if my girlfriend complained that I like left the fridge door open, I might say it is what it is. <laughs> you know, like it, I would just use it in the stupidest possible way, but um, to amuse myself perhaps. But it's um, there. Yeah, <laughs> it is there. It's lodged in your head. You can't control it. It is <laughs> what it is. Yeah, it's going to it's gonna come out whether I like it or not. So I, I may as well figure out a fun way to use it because, um, yeah, there's, there's no use repressing it, I think. There you go. Thanks so much for uh, chatting about uh, this with us, Miles. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. Miles Klee from Mail Magazine. That was the big story. It was what it was. If you would like more, you can find them on our website at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can also email us. The address is thebigstorypodcast at rci.rogers.com. You can find us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. You can find us and all our brother and sister podcasts at frequencypodcastnetwork.com. And of course, we're all in every single app. And if you can rate and review us, do that if you can't. Then just subscribe and listen and tell your friends. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together, and we were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.